the volleyball game against the SEC last night. Let me also say this in relation to the game Friday night. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, St. Mary's is the number one rated girls volleyball team in the nation. Is that correct? I think they are in the NAIA. And so our gals are going to need all the support we can give them. So, uh, you know, you make an effort to be here. I have a couple of announcements, too. This is a good way for me to sneak in announcements. Uh, number one, a number of you... Uh, do not have permanent residency, obviously, here at the college. You've come from, uh, from other areas. Uh, as you know, there is a general election coming up on no in November, the first uh, Tuesday in November. And so we will be having voter registration here at the campus in the dining center today. So if you want to participate in that election, it's a really a, a very easy thing for you to register. The voting takes place right here in this building. And so it's much easier than filling out an absentee ballot or something like that. So I would encourage you to, uh, to register today and use this as your permanent residence. That'll be in the cafeteria today. Also, uh, for the first time, we're going to be offering a uh, speed reading and comprehension class here at the college. It'll begin in a week and it'll last for some eight weeks. And if you've been having problems in reading, uh, the number of words you're reading a minute in your comprehension, I would encourage you maybe to try to plug into this. A number of students already are. If you would desire to have more information on that, just come by my office and my secretary will be more than happy to, uh, to help you in that area. Equipping for excellence. Equipping for excellence. This year, a study came out called A Report on Undergraduate Education in America. Let me read you some excerpts from that particular report. Many college students get diplomas without getting an education, leaving school ill-informed, parochial and lacking historical perspective, and good work habits, a Carnegie Foundation official said Sunday. Ernest Boyer, president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, said the foundation will begin a study in September to determine where American higher education is falling short. He goes on to say, there is disturbing evidence that college students are not well informed about the world in which they live, that they are becoming more parochial at the very time the human agenda becomes more global, that many students lack historical perspective and have little knowledge of significant social trends that will consequently shape their lives, he said. He said business and industry leaders complain about the communication skills and work patterns of graduates. There has been a decline in the performance of college students on the verbal section of the graduate record examinations. There is an urgent need to redefine carefully those educational purposes common to all institutions, to clarify conditions on campuses, and to, clear, and to be clear and constructive in offering proposals for renewal. Now, in a sense, that is an article that is relating to secular campuses. But basically what that article is saying, underlying that article, is the idea that excellence is somehow not being pursued anymore at the college level in America. Now you know, one of the side effects of a nation that values human liberty, as the United States does, is that the liberty and freedom that you are granted allows you to either excel or to be mediocre. You have to understand that. 
In the Soviet Union, that is not the case. In communist China, that is not the case. If you choose to be me mediocre in those cultures, you will be taken out of the mainstream of education and automatically placed into schools of vocational training. You will have no choice. But in America, where you have the opportunity to be free and to enjoy your liberty, one of the side effects of that is, is that if you desire to be mediocre, if you desire just to go with the flow, if you desire just to hang on, you have that liberty to do so within our culture. And I believe that one of the greatest challenges that we face as Christians today is simply this, the constant tendency to fall back or to settle for mediocrity in our lives. Now let me define these two terms so we know exactly what we're talking about this morning. Mediocrity is simply this, it is never fulfilling your potential as a child of God. It has nothing to do with the grades you get in class, nothing whatsoever. But what it does have to do with is you fulfilling your potential as a child of God in every area. On the other hand, excellence is simply living up to your potential as a child of God through the power of the indwelling spirit. I'll give you that again. Excellence is living up to your potential as a child of God through the power of the indwelling spirit. And the question for us then this morning is simply this. How can God begin through his spirit to develop this quality of life within us? And I think Paul helps us with a partial answer in Philippians chapter 3. So please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. The passage I want to look at specifically this morning is found in verses 4 through 14, a very familiar passage. But I think in this passage, we see Paul's view of excellence and how to attain it. It's just not the what to, if you will, but it is also the how to. You know, one of the things that used to really gripe me about college camp or Christian camps, whether it's high school, junior high, or college, when I was a youngster many, many years ago, simply this, preachers would come into these camps and they would really zero in on the what to. You need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, this, and this. But they were always really short on the how to. You ever thought about that? So often we're exhorted and we're exhorted and we're exhorted, but then the exhortation stops and nobody ever tells us how to do it. Well, in this particular passage, the Apostle Paul not only talks about the what to, but he also talks about the how to in his own life. And that's what we want to dwell on this morning. How can we begin to develop excellence within our own life? And first of all, we see in this particular passage that it begins with being saved. Let me read it to you if we might, if I might. Let's begin in verse uh, four. Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if anyone else thinks 
he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But what, now listen to this, but whatever, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness, and here it comes, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, it all begins for Paul with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, when he became a Christian, he was able to let go of all the fleshly baggage that he had been carrying along. You see, you go back and you read verse 4, his standard of life changed. You see, what, made, what, what Paul thought made him great before were those things that he listed. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, of a tribe of Benjamin. He was born into the priestly tribe. He was a part of the elite religious group in Israel. Or in, or in, yeah, in Israel. He was a Pharisee. He had the greatest educational training of the day. And you see, before Paul became a Christian, these were the things or the standards that he used to determine greatness in his own life. And it's true for us today as well. The world sets up for you and me as Christians a false standard of what it means to be excellent. And the thing we have to be careful about is that we don't fall into, a, fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to the world's standards in this particular area. But coming back to this once again, we see that Paul was able to let go of that because he knew Jesus Christ as his personal savior. And that might sound trite to you this morning. All of you that have come to this college have made a profession of faith. That is, you have told us on an application that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your savior. Now I've been around this place long enough not to believe that. I'm not that naive. I believe there are probably at least maybe as many as 10% of our student body that are professing believers but really are not saved. And so the issue for you, if you fall into that category this morning, is you can't even begin the race that Paul's involved in until you get this first issue settled. That is that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. So once again, when Paul became saved, his priorities changed. His priorities changed. And that's true for many people. There are a number of faculty that teach at this institution that if they were not saved would not be teaching here. They would be teaching at Ohio State. They would be teaching at Cal State Northridge. They would be making about twice as much money as they make here. But you see, when they became Christians, their priorities changed. Their standards of excellence changed. And it is exactly the same for us. Now look at verse 8, if you will. In verse 8, we see that Paul becomes involved in a continuing process. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Now you see what's happening here is simply this. 
we see in the verb knowing that Paul is also involved in a continuing process. That is, making Jesus Lord just isn't an abstract idea. Jesus becomes Lord of your life when you accept him as Savior. Jesus is Savior and Lord. But there is also a practical process, a practical growth process that Dr. MacArthur talked about on Monday, where this whole issue of Lordship continues to be heightened in your life as you continue to grow as a believer. So we're talking as well about a continuing process. Paul makes Jesus Christ his Lord, but it's not an abstract idea. It is something that is decided consciously in his life every single day. And what we need to grapple with as students is the totality of the Lordship of Christ. You see, when Christ is Lord of your life, and he is if you know him as Savior, that affects every aspect of your life. It's just not your devotional time. It's just not the time you spend at church. It's just not the time you spend in your Bible classes. It's the time, if you will, that you spend on the athletic field competing. You know, is Jesus Christ left on the sidelines when you step across that line and get on the field? He shouldn't be. Is Jesus Christ left on the sidelines when you go back to your room at night and begin to study? He shouldn't be. And the point for all of us is to really grapple with that particular issue. That the process of lordship is something that continues and is practical every single day of our lives and it affects every aspect of our lives. The reason I think that we battle in this area is because we as Christians in 20th century America tend to split or to drive apart what we call the spiritual from the secular. And you have to understand that when you take the Lordship of Christ seriously, there is no division. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as the spiritual and the secular. Everything you do is spiritual. Everything. Whether it's studies or vocation or athletics or whatever you do, it is all spiritual. And we need to really get a hold of that in our lives as Christian men and women. Now Paul goes on to talk about this in terms of a process. He also talks about the fact that this Lordship or making Christ Lord was very, very real to him. Look at verse 8, if you will. Verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, why was this true in Paul's life? I believe, verse 8 tells us, because he had now access to a new quality of knowledge that he never had prior to his salvation. Paul is plugging in to a, to a totally new life source, if you will. And therefore, Christ being preeminent, satisfied every need of Paul's spirit, soul, and body. And so as he grew, his greatest desire was to gain more and more of the character of his Savior in his life. Now once again, let's go back. 
All this, young people, all this growth depends and begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. None of this is even possible outside of first knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Secondly, Paul not only knew who Christ was and had understood and accepted the message, but he also talks about here knowing God on a daily basis through experience. Through experience. Now let me tell you what I mean here. When he uses the verb to know here, in our, in our English vocabulary, there are three different meanings for the verb to know. You can know that something exists, okay? I've never been to Mount Everest, but I know Mount Everest is there. I've never really even seen Ronald Reagan in person, but I know he's, he exists, okay? That's one way. Secondly, you can simply see something, okay? You can see it. But thirdly, and here, you can experience it. You can experience it. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, and it's been quite a while ago, I was in Chicago. Now, how many of you have ever seen the Sears Tower? Ever seen pictures of it? Okay, how many of you know it exists? It exists. All right, how many of you have been in the Sears Tower? Actually, read, rode the elevator. Okay, the numbers keep going down. Well, you know, Sears Tower is 106 stories. Now, they have a, they have a high-speed elevator in that tower that makes the trip from the 106th story to the floor in 66 seconds. Quite a sensation. Now, do you understand the difference between seeing a picture of the Sears Tower and believing the Sears Tower exists from actually being there and experiencing actually being in that building and the process of that elevator? That's what Paul is talking about in this passage. A vital experiencing daily in his life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul wants to experience Christ in a particular way. Look at verse uh, 9, if you will. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. See, everything has been changed. It's not legalism anymore. Paul's not basing anything on the past. He has a new relationship to Christ, and in that, he now has a new righteousness. Having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now listen to this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. This really gets serious. Being like him in his death. You know, that thing really starts high, doesn't it? It's really exciting. Paul wants to share in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And he does, since he's saved. But you know, I, I thought a lot about this passage as to why the order there. Why does the Apostle Paul begin with wanting to share in the resurrection of Christ and then proceeding to sharing in the suffering? I'll tell you why. Because Christians, and it was true in the life of the Apostle Paul, you know, one of the problems today in a lot of Christianity is that many Christians believe that when they get saved, something good is going to happen to them all the time. 
And this is explained through increase in wealth, through increase in health, through increase in prosperity. They really see that kind of an analogy. But you know, I don't see this here at all. You see, I see Paul really saying that he desperately needs the resurrection, the power of the resurrection in his life because of the suffering that he is going to be called upon as a child of God to go through. You see that? Listen, the Marines have a great saying, and it applies to Christianity too, as well. We folks are not promised a rose garden, but what we are promised is the power to be able to go through every level of deep water that God calls us to go through. You see that? And Paul desperately wants that kind of resurrection power active in his life because he knows what he's going to be called upon to go through as a Christian. Resurrection power gives us the ability to literally identify in a very real way, practically speaking, with the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Christ suffered so that we might have resurrection power. And, you know, we kind of get this idea that re resurrection power is pie in the sky by and by. Don't you believe that? Resurrection power is for here and now. It's something that we possess as a child of God. And so Paul says he desires to fellowship in his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. You see, resurrection power again allows us to go through the rough times. Now this affects every one of you differently. There are all different levels of suffering. Some of you suffer like mad over preparing for a New Testament quiz. Okay? An athlete suffers maybe in getting in condition. Maybe some of you are really going through some really deep suffering now because you have very serious illness in your family. The issue is not the circumstance. The issue is that the power is there. That's the issue. You see that? Nothing that you go through is too trite for God. And the issue is to understand that you have that. It is available. You have it. You possess it. The issue is applying it within your own life to your particular circumstances. You know, Spurgeon said this. When you are in the furnace, he already has been there before you. Do you really believe that? When you are in the furnace, Christ has already been there before you. That's the reality of this passage. Okay, thirdly, how do we as Christians really experience this excellence? This is why I want to zero in on the rest of the time together. Go down to verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this. And once again, I think he's pointing back to verse 11, where he says, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I, I love, I, you know, verse 12, 13, and 14 just really uh, bring a lot of peace into my own spirit. And they sh it should to you, too. Not that I have already obtained all this. You know, it's amazing. Here is the Apostle Paul, the writer of numerous epistles, the greatest champion of the Christian faith in the first century. And look how he begins. Not that I have already obtained all this, 
or have already been made perfect. But I what? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not, I love this, do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Has Paul arrived spiritually? No, he hasn't. Paul is still striving and pressing on as well. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now here comes the what to, folks. We've been talking, or the how to. We've been talking about excellence. We say it begins with a personal relationship with Christ. Okay? Secondly, it also begins by actively understanding and applying in our lives that lordship is just not simply something that's positional but it's something that carries on practically speaking into every area of our life and our great desire then is to experience christ in that way and then to actually live our lives that way as well so now comes that now the how to how do we as christians experience excellence look what paul says in verse 12 not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. Okay, now listen to me. It's hard work. Okay, did you get that? It's hard work, what Paul is talking about here. It's hard, conscious expansion of energy. Paul is persevering here. He's pressing on. It's keeping, the idea here is keeping at something until it is finished or completed. Now, in Paul's race in life, that will never be fully finished or completed. That is coming into Christ's likeness until he is either, or until he died and went to heaven and received his resurrected body. For us, it's either at the rapture or when we die. So that is a lifelong thing we're talking about. But that even has more practical application to us. The issue for us daily is simply this. Am I pressing on? Am I keeping at something until it is finished or completed? See how practical that becomes? Taking the universal principle of, of, of pressing on towards Christ's likeness. And out of that, extrapolating the fact that that has a very practical relationship to all of us every single day and every single activity we're involved in. You know, no athlete should ever be satisfied with their performance. You should never be satisfied in your level of spirituality. Hard work is involved. But you know something? It doesn't really talk here about winning in the sense that we know it in America today. You know, I, when I was in high school, I used to watch a lot of track meets. And, you know, one of the, one of the most interesting kinds of track, track meets in high school, and it, it was always true, proverbially true. You get up into the distance events, you know, and the guy's running a, a, a mile or, or a three mile or whatever. And it, it was invariably true at every one of these kinds of events, there was always a couple of kids out there running that had absolutely no athletic ability at all. Okay? The race would go on. The winner would come ripping in and win easily and everybody would applaud. But then all of a sudden the eyes would focus on out there on the track and maybe a half a lap behind. There'd be a couple of guys or one guy just struggling. Just struggling. And you're out there going, oh man, he's got to finish. He's got to finish. And what usually happens when that person crosses the finish line? What does the crowd do? 
The crowd applauds. Why? Because they have identified with that guy trying to finish what he's called to do. The issue, folks, is not how fast you do something. The issue is that you finish. Okay? You see, too many Christians will still be at the spiritual starting line at the rapture because they're unwilling to work. You know, one of the things that I really struggle with here, and it breaks my heart, is students that have a lot of goals but never finish any of them. They're quick starters. They have their whole life planned out in front of them. But for one reason or another, they never finish anything they start. I want to give you a term for that in a secular sense. When you begin to develop that pattern of life, you know what happens to you? You develop what is called a life script. Now you mark this. Those kinds of habits, folks, will follow you all the way through life. When you're 40 years old, when you're 45 years old, when you're 50 years old, your attitude is going to be, I've got all these great goals out here, and I never finish any of them. I have seen it over and over and over and over again, and that person eventually ends up his life never finishing anything that he began. Hey, striving for excellence, whether it's on a daily basis, whether it's in the spiritual level of your life, whether it's academic, whether it's athletic, whether it's in relations, where, no matter where it is, you have got to be willing to pay the price and persevere. You have got to work at it. Now, something else that perseverance or pressing on implies, and this is, this is a wonderful thing to get a hold of, Perseverance also implies confidence. That's really, that's really important. Perseverance implies confidence. You see, Paul realized that there were still many areas in his life that needed perfecting and maturing. And that's what's so great about the Bible. You know, the Bible tells it like it is. Now, you see, if the Apostle Paul would have been writing this passage of Philippians in the flesh, there's nobody in their right mind that would have put this in here. You know, if you desire to be, quote-unquote, the leader of this big movement all over the Mediterranean area, hey, the last thing you're going to tell people is you haven't arrived. If you think I'm wrong there, you just read things that our politicians write and say. Ronald Reagan, bless his heart, I don't think he's made a mistake in six years in the presidency. That's the nature of the beast. But here we have Paul being totally transparent before us here. Telling all of us today, telling me, telling you, hey, I haven't arrived. There are still areas in my life that need to become more Christ-like. I need to continue to persevere. But you see, Paul understood that simply because he had the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, he was able to do that and to press on with confidence. Now look at verse 12. Perseverance also implies something else. Perseverance also implies a goal. 
Okay, and in this context, it's to be perfect. Now, the word perfect here implies a goal. And you go down to verse 14, and we have it defined for us even more, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And what I think that simply means is this, is that Paul, in finishing his work, and being, in finishing his work would be called home to heaven to see Jesus. That was his ultimate goal. Now, once again, back to the how-to. What about the method of achieving the goal? Look at verse 13 again. We're not, we're not only pressing on, but we see something else in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of, but one thing I do. Now, listen to this. You underline this. It's crucial to your growth. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Two things can hold you back, young people. Number one, hanging on by guilt to confess sin in your life. When you go before the Lord and you ask forgiveness, you're, you are forgiven. Let go of it. Put it in the past. The other thing that can really hold you back is this whole idea of comparing yourself. You see, Paul cuts loose from that in the beginning of this passage. He says, I am now operating under a new standard. Christ's likeness. I'm not operating under the standard of being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, being a Pharisee and all that baloney. But you see, the human tendency in this area of pressing on, the human tendency is to fall back and compare ourselves to the wrong standard. Well, we do that all the time. Dr. MacArthur talked about it on Monday. When we, human nature being what it is, when we normally compare ourselves to somebody, what do we do? We compare ourselves to somebody that makes us look good. We only have one standard. And that's why we've got to forget the past and look ahead. What's the one standard? The one standard is Christ's likeness in every area of life. That's the issue. Okay? Christ's likeness in every area of life. You see, that removes the ego. Hey, I'll tell you, if an athlete wants to get in trouble and literally become mediocre, if you want to become mediocre as a student, all you need to do is start looking backwards, using a false standard by which to compare yourself. You know, even as a college, I would hope that our universal standard as a college would be this kind of thing, pressing on towards Christ's likeness. And that can be applied to every area. And you know, where you really get in trouble is where, even in a college situation, when you begin to compare yourself to other institutions. Well, you know, gee, Westmont has really slipped. You know, they're just not really where they were 10 years ago. Okay, statement may be true or untrue. But do you see what the trap is that you fall into when we begin to talk like that? We begin to compare ourselves with the wrong standard. And you know what that produces? It produces nothing but pride and arrogance. And I'll tell you this, the one thing that Christ has no use for at all is pride and arrogance. Okay? This is so practical. So Paul says, I'm looking towards the goal. I'm not looking backward. I'm looking toward the goal. I remember some years ago, and this is way before your time, when the, uh, when the, mile when the four minute mile was first broken, back I believe about 1956 or 57, it was broken by an English 
physician by the name of Roger Bannister. And there was an Australian by the name of John Landy. And John Landy had run the fastest sub four minute mile up to that time, even though Bannister was fat, had broken it first. And they met in the Commonwealth Games in Vancouver in 1956, I believe. And that was a great race. It was a two-man race. 70,000 people in the stands. It was a two-man race all the way. Nobody else was in the race. It was between the only two men that had ever broken the four-minute mile at that time. And I can remember watching that on television. And it was, a, it was an interesting race. Landy led all the way, as, as much as by three or four or five yards. And they came into that last turn on the last 220. And I can just see it in my mind right now. Landy looked back. He took his eye off the lane and off the goal, and he looked back over his left shoulder to see where Bannister was. And the instant he looked over his left shoulder, Bannister passed him on his right, and the race was over. It wasn't that Bannister was faster. It was that Bannister had strategized and had kept his eye on the goal. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. I can remember one time in high school, we had a guy on our football team back in 10th grade. Well, that's really a long time ago. And you know, on, on every athletic team, there are always guys that ride the bench that think they ought to be starting. I've never been on a team that didn't have guys that really felt that way. And we had this guy, and he was really bad. But anyway, he got into a game late in the game. We were way ahead in the game. And uh, we were going for an extra point. And uh, in, in those days, we didn't have the slick one, one the goal post that just had the one centerpiece. We used to have the old-fashioned, you, you had two things up and the bar across. Well, the play was, he was out at an end, and he was supposed to run what's called a post pattern, which is you run up the post, and the quarterback throws the pass to him, okay? This guy playing fulls perfectly, right? Perfectly. Guy rears back, throws the ball, the guy catches the ball, and the minute he caught the ball, this shows you the ego again. He turned and looked right into the stands, all the people, and he ran smack into the goalpost and knocked himself cold and dropped the ball. Do you understand what I'm getting at? That is a very realistic illustration. Another really good one. 1922 Rose Bowl game. Georgia Tech versus Cal University of California. Scores three to nothing in favor of Georgia Tech. They're so pouring down rain. California has the ball on the Georgia Tech six-yard line. California fullback goes into the line. He fumbles the ball. Roy Regal, a California tackle, picks up the ball and proceeds to run 90 yards in the wrong direction. His own halfback tackles him on the California four-yard line. Georgia Tech wins the game. What was Regal's problem? He lost sight of what? He lost sight of the goal. Okay? You're, you're amused at that, but do you see the practicality of this in your own life? You see, when you focus properly on the goal, which is Christ-likeness, that handles all the ego problems. That handles all the false comparisons. Because you know as well as I do, if you're honest before the Lord and you're focusing on Him, the closer you draw to Him in Christ-likeness, the more His life shines into you and reveals more and more of the areas that you need to turn over to Him. And what does that produce in your life as a believer? It produces real humility. You show me a, humble, a, a person that is truly humble, and I'll show you a person that's growing. 
in terms of Christ-likeness. Well, our time is almost gone. But let me just conclude by saying this. You see, what Paul is talking about here is a total commitment. He's talking about working hard. He's talking about having a goal. And you know, young people, there's a great opportunity that lies before you in so many areas this year. You have tremendous potential. Every single one of you have been gifted in a discreet and different way. Each and every one of you bears the image of God. God desires the best for you. He does not desire mediocrity. He does not desire you not living up to the potential that he has given to you. But the greatest thing that you can take out of here this morning is simply this. You are equipped to do that. You have the power of the indwelling spirit in your life. You have the power to strive for excellence every single day of your life. And not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You, whether you know it or not, or whether you're practicing or not, have already positionally been equipped for excellence. Young people, listen to me. Don't settle for mediocrity in your life. Expect God to do great things in your life. Expect Him to do great things this year. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the fire is He calls you to go through, expect God to do great things in the lives of your friends. Hold each other accountable. And you know what the result will be? That Jesus will be lifted up and God will be praised and glorified. And after all, that's why we're really here. Father, thank you so much for the...